You're listening to CRST, the podcast from Bryn Mawr Communications. Hello, this is William Wiley with Cleveland Eye Clinic, a division of Midwest Vision Partners. And we're talking about enhancements. And it's a two-part series. The first part is on corneal refractive enhancements. So more or less LASIK, PRK, SMILE, and how do we enhance those challenging cases to get the best results. The second part is going to be intraocular lens enhancement, so cataracts, premium lenses, uh, ICLs, and more or less when you have a missed target in an IOL case, you know, how to get them back to 2020. Okay, so we'll kick this off. I've got a great panel here. I'll let them each introduce themselves, but thanks for being here, and we'll, we'll kick it off with uh, Blake. Hey guys, this is Dr. Blake Williamson. I'm the president and managing partner of Williamson Eye Center in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Very excited to be here. This is such an important topic uh, and a, a really big differentiator, uh, by the way, between the good refractive surgeons and the great refractive surgeons, the ability to touch up and get people, uh, not leave them on the 10-yard line, but get them into the end zone. I think that's huge. Thanks for having me, Bill. My name is Priya Matthews. So I'm from Sarasota, Florida. I'm at Center for Sight. Really uh, happy to be here. Thanks, Bill, for the invitation. I completely agree with you. This group of patients, really high expectations. There's nothing wrong with them. You did surgery, um, great surgery, and you know everything doesn't always go come out perfectly. So to know how to deal with this is very important, and it gives you more confidence to do more surgery, the better that you know how to fix the problem afterwards. So thanks, Bill, for initiating this topic. Sure. Thanks, Priya. Arjun. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Thanks, Bill, for the invitation. My name is Arjun Hura. I'm a refractive, cataract, and anterior segment surgeon at the Maloney Shammy Vision Institute in Los Angeles, California. I think this is a really important topic, and there are a lot of nuances here. Like Blake alluded to, I think the ability to pick out the right solution for each patient is really the big differentiator between someone who just dabbles in LASIK and PRK and someone who is truly a comprehensive refractive surgeon and really a master of the subspecialty. Great. Yeah, I totally agree. So, yeah, well, thanks, you all. Yeah, yeah, as, as we all touched on, this is a super important topic, and uh, if you're doing refractive surgery, you're going to have enhancements. It's, it's part of the part <laughs> for the course. So, you know, I, I'm going to kind of go over a few different scenarios, more or less pretty basic and likely scenarios, but as basic as these are, I think we'll all see that there's maybe nuances to approaching uh, these type of cases. So, you know, just kind of go through and feel free to interject and, you know, keep this uh, interactive. But, you know, let's say you, you've done LASIK, a uh, 38-year-old myopic LASIK, and then eight months later, the patient regresses to minus one. You know, sort of what is your best approach for, for uh, you know, attacking this, you know, a pretty routine case uh, that's more or less minus one after myopic LASIK. Blake, how do you how do you approach this? And what type of laser platform, let's say, do you use? And do you do wavefront guided or optimized? And I'm just curious to see how do you approach that type of enhancement? I like this, this clinical scenario because this was me, actually. So when I had my LASIK, I was 37 years old. And I ended up minus zero point, I think it was like a, a minus 250 with like a buck of sill. And I ended up like minus 0.75 in one eye, and the other eye was plano. And my plano eye was 2010, unbelievable. And my, my minus 0.75 eye was 2020-ish, but it was a, a blurry 2020. And the, and the best line that I could see like really crisply was like 2040. And I was complaining to my dad who did my LASIK, and, uh, and he was like, oh my God, you're one of those patients now. You know, like you're so much better. 
I'm like, no, but I get it. Now. You know, so like my own LASIK experience, I've written about this, totally changed my mind about the idea of enhancing small, um, not that minus one is small, but, you know, even down to minus 50, at least looking at it and taking it seriously and doing a contact lens challenge to make sure it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the juice is worth the squeeze and, and all that stuff. So, so if, if I'm 38 in this clinical scenario and they end up minus one, um, I would have a conversation with them. It would depend on where they started. Were they minus seven to start? If they went from minus seven, and are they minus one in both eyes? You know, let's say like they're minus 50 or Plano-ish in one eye and the other eye is minus one-ish, right? I may talk to them about leaving them a little bit myopic and talk about, you know, reading glasses that'll happen at some point. My dad had that same conversation with me. And when I put on a minus 0.75 contact lens in that other eye, my bad eye, quote unquote, um, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, this is this is what I want. And this is fantastic. And if it means that I have to go into reading glasses a year or two earlier, then whatever, I'll go with it because I really wanted to be corrected. So I would at least have that conversation. There, there are some patients, maybe that maybe that patient is a tax attorney um, who is constantly looking at spreadsheets and like, you know, their up close vision is super important to them. Maybe they're a ferocious reader, you know, and they love you know devouring books and all this stuff and they don't want to deal with reading glasses, maybe they wouldn't mind being minus one. But I would imagine that the majority of young people, young-ish people, 38, getting getting LASIK, um, if they ended up minus one, they really would want to you know, get corrected. So if they wanted me to correct them all the way to Plano, um, I would do it, you know, uh, absolutely. But I would at least have that conversation with them to let them know, hey, you know what, maybe this isn't the end of the world. It, you know, this could delay reading glasses for a little while, um, you know. But if they're minus minus fifty to minus seventy five ish, maybe that would be a better sell. At minus one, I feel like they're going to want to be touched up. So I would lift the flap and I would I would touch them up. Great comments, Blake. Yeah, I, I think it is important to kind of discuss how do you bring that up and how do you talk about the patients like what happened, you know, Priya. What, what do you say to that patient? Yeah. So this is funny because I have this exact same situation tomorrow. I'm lifting yeah. the flap. So I had a thirty five year old that was around like a minus eight or nine. Um, pretty high myope that I did, you know, uneventful myopic LASIK about six months ago. So the first thing, you know, pretty obvious that we all know, like we're going to assess for stability, make sure that I have at least two refractions, you know, a few weeks apart, make sure they're stable. Not, not that anything's changing. And usually they are. Um, I'll always check the corneal topography also make sure there's nothing weird going on there. So I repeat the testing. Um, and then, like you said, Blake, I couldn't agree more that, you know, in your thirties, I really think that they don't tolerate even a little bit of my, my, I mean, maybe a 0.5, but minus one, I think most people in their thirties are going to want to be enhanced. This conversation would be very different if the patients were in their forties, you know? And I think that, um, I've learned over the years that what we, our feelings about it and how we approach this conversation, the patient can feel it. Right, so we need to exude confidence and 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 be be confident about it, but also um, saying that this happens, that's okay, right? We've dealt with the situation before. We talked about it before surgery that there's you know X percent of chance that you may need an enhancement. Um, and usually with my very high myopes, I, I do have that conversation, and so there's really no surprises, and then they feel pretty comfortable, like okay, everything looks good. You did a really thorough examination. Um, contact lens trial. I will try that sometimes if needed. And, and they feel confident that fixing that prescription is going to um, take care of it. So it, especially if I made the flap, you know, I'm going to lift that flap 
Um, I had a really great conversation with Bill Wiley a few weeks ago about epi ingrowth and kind of, I approached the flap lift kind of like always thinking about epi ingrowth on on my mind and just always brushing out and taking those precautions um, during the flap relift. And um, that's what I would do. I usually do the way I would, we use a wave front optimized been pretty happy with that. Um, So for the flap relift, I, I, I would go for that. That's what I've had experience, but I'm interested what you do in this situation, Bill, between yeah. the wavefront guide and the wavefront optimized. Yeah, I mean, w- one thing that comes to mind is let's say that minus one, you're thinking likely you're going to be removing, let's call it 18 microns or somewhere between 15 and 18 microns per diopter. And so when it's wavefront optimized, you pretty much know that's what you're going to get. With some of the custom treatments, I think they can be great. Let's say if the uh, ablation was a little decentered or a little bit irregular with a customized or wavefront optimized treatment, you might have a potential of improving upon, let's say, best corrected visual acuity or uh, uncorrected visual acuity, but there's a chance you can over-treat that eye. So let's say you look at a wavefront optimized, uh, I'm sorry, wavefront guided treatment, it might say 30 microns of tissue is being removed, or even more, sometimes 40 microns, and then you have to pause because you can easily take that minus one and now turn them into a plus one and not really realize it. So before you just sort of you know, uh, have complete faith in that uh, customized treatment, look at the microns, see how much it's going to be removed and, uh, and, and before you treat it, because then you can be in this situation. Now you've, it's sort of like on a putting green, you have this putter, you have a one foot putt, you want to pretty much put that ball in the hole, but if you you know overswing and knock it ten feet past the hole, the patient's not happy. You're not happy. So those are things I think about. Uh, you know, along those lines, thinking of kind of an overcorrection. Arjun, what? Let's say same patient, but instead of minus one, let's say they were initially myopic and now they're plus one. Uh, let's call it six months out. A little bit different mindset. The patient's now sort of saying, Doc, you know what? I'm having trouble both distance and now my near vision's blurry. What happened? You know, uh, what's going on? Anything different that you do, Arjun, for this, for a patient, let's say maybe it's a little earlier, you're maybe two months out after surgery and they're plus one. What do you do with that patient? Yeah, that's a great scenario, Bill, because I do think there are a lot of differences here between the two cases. So if you're monitoring this patient and you notice early on in the postoperative period that they're starting to trend towards hyperopia, you can do a couple of things. One you can adjust the drops you're utilizing. So you can back off the steroid and keep the NSAID, and you can utilize a method called CLAPIX, which stands for Contact Lens Assisted Pharmacologically Induced Keratus Steepening. And you can essentially use a bandaged contact lens with the power of the residual hyperopic refractive error combined with acular or a different topical NSAID. And what this will do is theoretically reshape the cornea by inducing epithelial proliferation and thickening of the anterior stroma. The contact lens will induce local hypoxia and increase the NSAID contact time. And the thought is that together this leads to localized epithelial changes because it only takes around 12 to 14 microns of change in thickness to induce about a diopter of change in refractive error. Now, when I first heard about this technique, I almost thought it was voodoo. You know, it's not something that most refractive surgeons are aware of or even believe in, I would say. But after trying it out, and we're actually going to be presenting our results from Cleveland over the past 12 months at Ascaris, I'm actually pretty surprised by how often this works, and a lot of times you can actually avoid going back to the laser suite altogether for a second surgery. So if you can catch this sort of hyperopic trend early on, I think this is a good way of mitigating that. 
But let's say now you're six months out, a year out, then things are a bit different because that window of utilizing Clapix or utilizing a topical NSAID, I think that window is closed usually within the first four to eight weeks. So in that case, then I would go ahead and do a flap lift and ablation. I wouldn't do PRK because we know that hyperopic PRK can sometimes be unreliable and the results can be suboptimal. In terms of how I would change the actual ablation being programmed relative to if the patient had a residual myopic refractive error, because you're treating the periphery of the cornea, I tend to not cut back as much when doing a hyperopic enhancement as I would if I was doing a myopic enhancement when there would be a good chance of central epithelial thickening. And finally, to the point of doing an enhancement, I always tell these patients that there's going to be a little bit of unpredictability and I think for these patients, epithelial mapping can really help out a lot because it can really show you the degree of zonal epithelial hyperplasia, and that can help you figure out just how much you potentially want to cut back on the ablation that you're programming. Yeah, th those are some great points, Arjun. So I think in summary, if you have an overcorrection, you can maybe mitigate things with a contact lens, and that sort of, number one, gets the patient happy. You, you put the uh, prescription in the plus one or plus 75 in the contact but not only does it get them functioning, it actually can be a therapeutic as well and induce some epithelial hyperplasia to cause some reversal of their uh, prescription. So I think that's a, a great you know, approach uh, to kind of you know, both sort of temporize things, but also uh, have some therapy induced as well. Um, you know, so Blake, let's, let's change gears. Let's look at, you know, these are we're all talking about enhancements in that first year. Let's talk about an enhancement uh, six years later same patient 38 year old had a minus five uh, treatment was really happy but now they're say 44 years old and now they're a minus one they're like doc you know my lasik wore off you know what what's what's the best bet and some things that come to mind i'm curious how you handle let's say the finances on that uh do you is that covered free of cost or do you say well there's going to be a charge of that initially it worked and now now you, you know your eyes changed and you know there's going to be a fee to that or I'm curious just sort of how you handle the, the patient and also what your medical treatment is going to be for that scenario. All of our enhancements within the first year of primary LASIK are, are covered. Uh, day one, year two, it's not covered. No, you know, and, and that's loose. I mean, if someone comes 18 months later because they've been serving in the military or they had moved home to take care of a sick mom, obviously we're going to meet them in the middle and, and figure that out. Um, but if someone's coming five years later, they had it in, in their late 30s, now they're in their mid 40s. No, that wouldn't be something that we do for free at all. It, it would be, a, you know, a, a full price treatment. Um, and um, and and that would be someone, again, I would have a long talk with because if they're 45 years old and they're minus one, you know, um, I would say, you know, talk, talk to me about all your friends in their reading glasses. Like, what's that like, right. you know? Are you using reading glasses? And they're going to say, no, not really. You know, not for most things. And I'm like, man, it's, I mean, I could absolutely do this, but we're going to trade, you know, uh, distance glasses for near glasses. I don't know that that's what you want. If it's what you want, you know, then I could offer you a treatment called PRK. Uh, I wouldn't lift a flap, even though you absolutely could lift a, lift a flap five, six, seven years out. Um, I, I just, I don't really lift them past two years. Uh, preferably within the first year um, is, is kind of my cutoff just because of that being growth. And I just don't feel like dealing with it because I had a couple of those issues and that's no fun. Um, but we could do PRK, you know, if you, if you really want it, I'm just going to let you know what that's like from a patient perspective and just how that's going to feel compared to your LASIK. It's a longer recovery, less predictable, all those things, um, you know, and, and, and likely you, you may have to go immediately to reading glasses. You know, they may want to test that out. 
let's say that they say, you know what, I get it, but I don't do a whole lot of reading. Um, and my distance vision is super important to me. Maybe I'd put them in a contact lens and let them test out my, that minus one and make sure they like it. And more importantly, see how their near vision uh, sort of changes once I put that minus one on. Um, and that would kind of inform my decision. I don't know if there's a wrong answer. I think a PRK touch up, you know, six, seven, eight years later is reasonable as long as they understand what they're giving up, as long as they understand, um, you know, uh, how their vision is going to continue to change. Uh, and I always tell them, you know, your LASIK didn't wear off. What happened was the other 99% of your eye, which we didn't laser, continued to age. And that's why you've had a change here. Uh, the very surface of your eye didn't really change that much. Um, so it could go either way, uh, just depending right. on what their goals are and, and all that. And what's, I'm curious what the group's thought is on uh, epi mapping, you know, uh, on these patients. You know, if you, let's say you run an epithelial map. And it shows, let's say you're anticipating the average epithelium is supposed to be 50 microns and you run this epithelial map and it says 70 microns. So there's a little bit of epithelial hyperplasia. I'm curious how you would handle that, that, uh, the same patient. You go in and treat the full minus one. They say you've done a contact lens trial. Like you said, Blake, I think that's a great move. Show them what it might be like when treated, but, uh, so you've, you've kind of made the decision to treat, but now you have this, uh, epithelial hyperplasia. And I'm curious what the group's thought is. You know, Pri, any thoughts on that? What you do to with a patient that appears like they uh, the main reason for regression is epithelial hyperplasia? Yeah, I actually haven't incorporated that into my routine cases. I've been using more epithelial mapping for the um, like the patients that are tough to diagnose keratoconus. Sure. So sure. I actually don't have in this situation. I don't have experience with epithelial mapping interested about the group what what else is anyone else incorporating it yeah well it is a good question i mean i think it, it's one of these tools that we've had and now we've taking it and now i look at it, i'm like okay now that i have this map what, what does it mean it? yes yeah. yes exactly yeah. so i think it's i think we're early enough in the uh in trying to understand this to, to say okay well how do i use this information and how is it going to change what i typically would do uh, I, think, I, think, I, think that, I think that i think that certainly you know if they're if they have some hypertrophy um, you know, the idea is, is that if you, if you do a PRK and remove that epithelium, you're going to have hypertrophy again, if not more. And so, you know, theoretically, you'd want to back off your myopic treatment. So that the fact that it's a bit, um, um, you know, unpredictable um, it, it is concerning and something you should probably go over with the patient. Yet another reason that, you know, letting them hang out around minus one might not be the end of the world. If you were going to treat, maybe you'd back off to like a minus 50 or a minus 75 or something like that. I know some people who will just take off the epithelium and not do anything else, not even do a treatment. Um, so right. I think it just depends on um, kind of what your experience is with that. Yeah, I've heard of that. I've heard of people just removing epithelium. I've not tried that myself, but um, having seen enough overcorrections in the same scenario, I'm definitely tempted. Uh, Arjun, any other additional thoughts on that type of patient? No, the only other thing I was going to say is that some surgeons will even just remove the epithelium and maybe apply a little bit of myomycin C with the thought that maybe that will prevent an exuberant recurrent epithelial hyperplastic response. I don't know how much that's been validated, but I certainly think that when doing enhancements, especially PRK on these patients, I really put more emphasis on epithelial mapping than I otherwise would for a virgin cornea, because I do feel that if I'm noticing there's a large central disc, then I will cut back more than, let's say, maybe the 20 to 25% otherwise would, and some surgeons will even cut back on the treatment ablation by 50% if there's quite a bit of epithelial hyperplasia noticed on the epithelial mapping. 
So I think, yeah, uh, thanks, Arjun. I, you know, I think reducing the, uh, the treatment is definitely a consideration on, the, on these patients uh, with a late regression. Um, along those li uh, lines, you know, we see typically the scenario, somebody's had LASIK, and then uh, years later, they might need PRK to fine-tune things if they do need an enhancement. Um, let's say if a patient for, uh, had PRK originally, let's say they're in the military, and the main reason they had PRK, it was... Uh, for um, you know, their job uh, and military requirements. And so they didn't necessarily have it for thin corneas or dry eye or things like that. They just had it because uh, it was mandated by the, um, you know, uh, the job requirement. And then they come back you know, 10 years later and say, doc, you know, I've had a little regression. Uh, you do an uh, evaluation and their cornea is thick. Let's say it's over 500 microns and maybe they're minus one. And you're thinking to yourself, well, do I do PRK again or do I, you know, uh, uh, consider LASIK uh, uh, on top of the PRK. I'm curious on the group, has anybody uh, done LASIK after PRK and any considerations with that approach? Yeah, I actually just had a very similar case in the past several weeks. It was the exact same situation. It was someone who had been in the military and had PRK for that reason. And now afterwards, no longer in that line of work, pursuing a different profession. Really, the corneas were pristine from a topography, tomography, and epithelial mapping standpoint. Very minimal residual refractive error. A little bit more than minus one and we had the conversation about doing prk versus doing lasik and this individual was going to go on to get a pilot's license and really truly needed the best possible outcome and so when considering doing prk on top of prior prk where there may be a little bit more variability in healing versus doing secondary lasik after prk i felt that if we could offer this patient lasik we could probably get a much more reliable outcome afterwards so that's what i went ahead and did in terms of how i changed how i normally would do lasik I went ahead and made just a slightly thicker flap than normal because there was a little bit of epithelial hyperplasia that could be seen on the epithelial mapping, so I really wanted to minimize the chances of suction loss, and I really just wanted a nice, clean LASIK flap to be made. And then I went ahead and did the enhancement, and the patient did terrific. And Arjun, what's your typical flap depth, and what did you do for this case? Yeah, my default typically is 90 microns for a LASIK flap. That's maybe thinner than some surgeons, but with a Vismax laser, you can get a really nice flap at 90 microns. I was actually using an interlace to do this enhancement, so I bumped up the flap to 120 microns from my usual 110 microns on the interlace. That's a great case. Yeah, I like that because you, you basically keep all that sort of unknown of the epithelium in the flap, and so you don't have to worry about that healing you know, response and sort of the variability that might go along with that. So. I think that's a great move in that in that uh, scenario, Bill. Bill, let me ask you: where, When would you move on? What age is there an age that you might move to a lens-based approach in that situation? You know, because it's like if someone's hanging out in my minus one and they're forty-five-ish, like I'm, I'm, I'm going after the lens. You know, because like then you'd be doing an ablation on top of an ablation, and you're probably going to be doing a custom lens replacement within three to six, seven years. And like to me, I'm kind of like, man, why don't I just go straight? You know, go 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 straight for the bag right now. Um, do you do you feel that way with your lens-based approach? A lot of people, you know, are, are all about lens-based. Some people are very much against that and would be on the cornea. They'd beat up on that cornea all day long until there's no, there's nothing left. I don't know where you yeah. are. Are you somewhere in the middle? <laughs> yeah, I'm somewhere in the middle. It's a uh, great discussion. I think it's George Waring once said, you know, why punish the cornea for crimes of the lens? And, uh, <laughs> you know, and so, you know, uh, if the patient's drifted a little bit, you know, to, to go after the lens. And yeah, I, in theory, I think that's a great approach. And I think now with uh, technologies like light adjustable lens, 
you can feel more confident in hitting that target. To be honest, for a long time, I was so worried on those patients, the ones that were, you know, had refractive surgery, had this, you know, you know, 2015 vision once, and now they're like maybe best corrected to 2020, 2020 minus. They've had a little bit of shift in their lens, and they're like, Doc, it's not as good as it was. Uh, and you look at them, let's say they're 55, and they have some small cataract formation, and you're thinking, okay, do I take the lens out? But if I take it out, I might miss target and become, you know, be further away than we started. And I, I, you know, I basically call this, uh, I tell the patient, you're sort of in this limbo, LASIK limbo. And I said, you've got enough cataract that's made it a little bit challenging to see, but it's not quite thick enough where it meets the criteria to have it removed. I'd always just, you know, kick the can further down the road. I'm like, you know, there's technology that's coming out in a year or two. Why don't you come back? And so I think now we're kind of at that time when the technology is here. Um, and uh, there, there is technology that can address this. And so um, it could be... Um, you know, lighter disc lens. I think the IC8 uh, with uh, or Aptera with the aperture optic is going to be interesting for patients like this. Uh, might give them, you know, some uh, presbyopic correction. You have the extended depth of focus lenses, which are pretty cool. You know, I'm curious, you know, which lenses you all use in a post-refractive eye at this point. For me, I'm I'm pretty much exclusively doing. If it's going to be a a, a presbyopia correcting lens, I'm just doing the, the uh, Symphony Opti Blue. Um, that's been kind of my go-to. That's the new Symphony that came out. Um, really, really forgiving lens, and, and that's been good for me. And if they, if they're, if they're monovision people, or if they have a funky cornea, then I'm going LAL with some micro mono um, all day. Yeah, I'm doing similar. So um, I also just wanted to add, you know, I'm going more for a lens base, like especially in the mid 40s or 50s. And the reason is I'm also thinking these are the same patients that want multifocals. And unless they're doing a light adjustable lens, I'm thinking about, can I do an enhancement after they get the symphony or vividity or whatever they're going to get? Right. So let's just say that you do an, you do another touch up and then, you know, a few years, three, four or five years from that, then they get, I don't know, vividity lens, whatever lens. And you may have to touch it up a third time. Right. And as a cornea person, that makes me cringe. <laughs> You know, right. like, why not just do the lens? But, you know, expectations are, are difficult. So you have to really set that because we know with these myopes, sometimes the quality of vision may not be the same if you put in a multifocal lens. So um, that all needs to be taken into account too as well. Um, you were saying about what lenses I do um, for, for post-refractive patients. I really love the light adjustable. I always bring it up with my post-refractive but we do a lot of symphony and we do synergy actually also in post-refractive patients, but you better be really sure that you hit it on target because synergy is less tolerant of refractive error and astigmatism. And again, I'm always thinking about, can I enhance this eye if I need to? Um, that's going to give me more confidence as well. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, having that enhancement in your back pocket, having yeah. that one more, if you're one in your mind, I think, we, yeah, we probably only want to really touch up a LASIK eye once and to yeah. save it after that lens surgery, I think is a great option. Thank you for the great discussion on enhancements of corneal refractive surgery. I wanna tee up the second portion of the series which is just gonna air later, where we're gonna talk about enhancing intraocular lenses and how to get the best possible outcome on a missed target from an intraocular lens. For more shows like the one you just listened to, check out the podcast channel on itube.net.